Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Davis, and I'm not in the studio today. I'm happy to say I'm out in the community for our first in-focus discussion that is outside of NPR News. It's so good to be able to see the faces of all of our audience members. Thank you for joining us. I really do appreciate it. Now, this has been a long time coming. When we started in focus the summer of 2020, the goal was to talk about disparities in Minnesota. But since it was in the middle of the pandemic, we haven't been able to host these conversations in person. That changes with this discussion. Right now, I'm at Arlington Hills Community Center in St. Paul, and the location is important because today we're talking about violence, and St. Paul has unfortunately seen its share this year. While violent crime rates have dropped from their pandemic peak in 2021, numbers are still high, and St. Paul has recorded 12 murders so far this year. And of course, it's not alone. Minneapolis is also dealing with a string of shootings, and cities in greater Minnesota are reporting elevated numbers of homicides, robbery, and assault. But the statistics only tell a portion of the story, and that is where our guests come in. They have expertise in how trauma affects individuals and communities, and they have some tangible ideas for healing and violence interruption. Let me introduce each of them. I want to start with Linnea Jacobson. Linnea works in St. Paul's newly formed Office of Neighborhood Safety as the manager of the just announced Neighborhood Safety Community Council. She's also a St. Paul native who has an extensive background in public safety. I'm so glad you're here. Nice to meet you, Linnea. Thank you. Nice to be here. Next, we have someone who works with Linnea. This is Isaac Russell. He's the chair of the aforementioned Neighborhood Safety Community Council. And congrats on that, Isaac. He's also a St. Paul native and resident and the director of public policy at the Center for Economic Inclusion. Welcome to In Focus, Isaac. Um, Good to be here. Thank you. And next to him, we have Darlene Fry, executive director of the St. Paul nonprofit Irreducible Grace Foundation. After working in education for many years and seeing firsthand the lasting effects of trauma, she started Irreducible Grace Foundation to help young people heal. And they're doing some really innovative work, which we will talk about in the next hour. Thank you for being here, Darlene. Nice to meet you. Thank you, Ms. Davis. So let's start um, with, the, with the lay of the land, so to speak. I mentioned that big cities in Minnesota, like Minneapolis and St. Paul, uh, are really reeling from multiple violent crimes this winter and this spring. In Minneapolis, there have been several high-profile shootings, like the one that wounded Minneapolis North football player Cash Grunau. In St. Paul, the stabbing death of Devin Scott at Harding High School was followed by a string of shootings in the community. At Devin's memorial, three people were injured during a drive-by shooting, and then the following day, five people were shot at a separate funeral gathering. We should note that the number of homicides, though, overall is lower this year than at the same time last year, but, but still, a lot of violence for a community to absorb. Um, Linnea, so let's start with you. Tell me what those incidents, what I've sort of just laid out right there, what does that say to you about what is happening right now? What it says to me is that our um, youth don't value life. It says to me that there's something tremendous that we need to do. There's a whole lot of work that we need to come together as St. Paul citizens to show that we care about each other, show that we want this to stop, show that we need things to change. There are a lot of resources that are needed. Um, There are a lot of um, conversations that need to be had. I have to sit with that 
uh, sentence for a minute, don't value life. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I hear you. I, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is disheartening at a young age. And so what does, what does that look like then when you don't value life and you're still in your teens? I feel like it looks like there's nothing for them to look forward to. I feel like if they had um, job security, if they had goals, um, if they had people that would stand behind them and believe in them, if they had more mentors, if we had what we had when I was younger were community pioneers that grew up in that neighborhood and, and, and mentored to the kids and everyone knows everyone. And you're interacting. Yeah. With them. If we I had see. more of that, I think that we could change some things. So for many people, this will be a new term for them. It's new to me. Uh, tell us about St. Paul's Office of Neighborhood Safety and your role within that. What is what is that? So St. Paul Office of Neighborhood Safety was formed based on the recommendations of the Community First Public Safety um, Report. Um, from there, the mayor decided that he wants to have a department that offers wraparound services, that um, follows up with community members, that implements new policies and programs to stop violence. And from that, he also wanted to form a council of community members. So that's how we came with the Neighborhood Safety Community Council. And that council of community members is going to be the ones to Um, stand behind Office of Neighborhood Safety, make recommendations on public safety efforts, um, try to put programs in place that are sustainable, and fund grassroots programs as well um, to go out and do the work in mentoring the youth. So real people with some real stories and real ideas. Real people with real stories and real ideas. Right. Um, Isaac, I'm going to you next because you work with Linnea. When you hear those stories of violence and, and how um, they result in, in people being wounded seriously or dying, um, what does that say to you? What it says to me is that those are the very visible manifestations of the struggles that we have. Right. So if we were to think of, of well, a bowl and... Water in the bowl is, is that life that you're talking about, Linnea, that people are feeling is devalued. All these little cracks in that bowl, there's leaks there. And that is a manifestation in every one of these child's life, right? Not having a security at home, not having security at school, going to school hungry, these challenges that they face, not having someone there as a mentor. And all these little cracks get to the point in which the water's all gone, right? So you lose that child, you lose people. People slip through those cracks. So for me, what it, what, it, what it says to me is that there's an opportunity here. It's not just a deficit model in which you're thinking about what people don't have. There's an opportunity to do something different to invest in these kids. And, and I, you know, as someone from my background, I was fortunate enough to have an opportunity where many people didn't. Otherwise, it could have been very different for me. But that's what I think of. And you grew up in St. Paul? I grew up everywhere. Um, you know, by the, by the time I was 15, it was about 35 different places where I lived, including homeless shelter, public benefits programs, galore is what we relied on. So, you know, in that sort of environment, that sort of instability, right? You and I were speaking about schools prior, you know, going to school hungry, getting lunch shamed at school, going back to a roach-infested hotel. That is not the, the environment that allows someone to go be successful, but I had an opportunity where others didn't. So what are those opportunities we can provide for people? 
So this, I guess, explains your interest and your involvement with the Neighborhood Safety Community Council, the group that you chair. So tell us what's, what is and will be magical about this council, this community council. How is it community-led? So it's community-led because the community's on it, right? And the community's being empowered to go through the data, learn about what's out there, have conversations with people across the city, which is something we've already started and we will continue to be doing. But I think what the real magic is about something like this is that you have to envision it is that we're not at an end state. There's never going to be any point in which we can say, all right, done, we fixed our challenges. Something like this to exist moving forward that allows our public safety model to be a living model that changes based upon the needs. To me, that's something that could be truly revolutionary. But it's going to take a lot of hard work. It's going to take a lot of tough conversations that you had mentioned, Linnea, to get this done. So to me, that's the magic. One thing that um, I've been thinking about when it comes to this topic is that violence both begins with and creates new waves of, of trauma. And Darlene, your organization, Irreducible Grace, uh, steps into trauma and seeks to heal those wounds. Tell us more about your organization, um, how it started, and how you address violence and of all kinds in the community. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, we're about an 11-year-old organization, and we really started because we wanted to walk alongside young people who, had come, who were coming out of foster care um, because often they leave and they don't have a positive adult presence in their life. And so that's what we had hoped to be. Um, but we really started with listening sessions with young people who had been in foster care and said, what do you need? We don't want to impose on you what we believe you need. We want you to tell us what you need. Um, and it took a little time for them to trust that we really wanted to hear that and that we really wanted to walk with them. And really what they said is they want to have a voice because when you're in foster care, everybody speaks for you, whether they know your name or not, they make decisions about your life, and then they move on and you're left to deal with the repercussions. Um, Over the time, we have found that the thing that they don't say they need help is with that trauma and dealing with the fact that they were separated from their parents. They don't know why most times. They don't know where their siblings are. There's a lot of things they don't know and it just creates waves and waves of trauma. Um, over the years, we've done a lot of work with our young people. We've worked with Resma Minikin, um, Sam Simmons, and a lot of other healers of color to talk about what is it that we can do with our young people. And we've talked about intergenerational trauma. That We know now that the science tells us that whether they are connected with their family still or not, they're still carrying their family's trauma. They're carrying it in their DNA. They're carrying it in their bloodstream. And that trauma sometimes erupts, and they don't even know why. And so what we do with them, we do a lot of breathing work with them. We do somatic body movements. Um, We use the arts. We do drumming. Uh, They do some weaving. We do all those types of things that help them get into a meditative type of state. But also we teach them about how you regulate your emotions, that you can control that. It's the pause finding the pause when you're emotionally triggered that gets us to that point of understanding. I can then maybe see the humanity in someone else. I can see someone else's life and I can maybe think about not taking it if I have the ability to do that, if I can regulate myself. Have you found that there is a reluctance to talk about one's trauma or do people want to, to, to talk about it, to process it, to get it out? I think it depends on the person, but it also depends on how you set that up and what's your relationship with them. Um, like right now at our center, we just opened a Black Youth Healing Arts Center in Frogtown, 
And, you know, we have yoga, community yoga, and it's our most popular attended event right now. And half of the young people in there are black men. And we would have never guessed that when we started. And they leave yoga, and they are in such a state, they go into our poetry lab. And when they go into poetry lab and they begin to work with Danae Smith, our poet leader, all types of stories come up and the traumas and what they've lived. And so it's about how we set them up and how are we with them in relationship and then how we listen once they say what they have to say. Violence, uh, we know, isn't just a big city thing. Communities across Minnesota reported a spike in crime in the last few years. But since we are in St. Paul right now, let's zero in on that. So, Linnea, tell us more about uh, what is happening in the Office of Neighborhood Safety to address some of the unique situations that we have here uh, in St. Paul. What are some things that you all are doing that you want people to know about? Well, the Office of Neighborhood Safety, we are working with a lot of partners um, all around um, the Twin Cities. We are working with Ramsey County. We are working with Healing Streets. We are working with numerous um, other organizations that go out and our boots on the ground is what I like to call them. Um, one of the things that we are focusing in on now is wraparound services. And what does that mean? I know folks talk about wraparound services a lot, but if you're not familiar with that term, what does that mean? They are continuous um, services that people need in order to um, continue to navigate through life after a traumatic, traumatic experience, um, which is particularly in this moment, we're talking about gun violence, let's say. Um, There are um, people need information on um, services with court. People need um, shelter. Some people lose their benefits um, because they have to relocate right away. These are things that services that are offered um, that a lot of people don't know about in order to keep them going on with their daily life while they're grieving or while while they're trying to um, navigate away from their current situation with violence. And in your conversations uh, with people or your staff, do you find people express worry and anxiety about the next thing that may happen? And what role that plays in how they, you know, deal with today? I think that's, that, yeah, that's the point of the wraparound services, because people do. They get anxiety about, okay, um, something happened in my place of living, and now I'm going to be evicted, or I have to leave my job because I have to go attend to my kids because something happened to my kids in a violent situation. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, when things happen to us, life does not stop. Right. And when things happen to us... We go through the emotions, and we can't always think about what's the next step and what do we need in order to move forward. And that's when people like um, organizations like Office of Neighborhood Safety come into play because they can help you think about your next steps that you're not even considering um, due to the traumatic experience you're dealing with in the moment. I'm curious about uh, curious about some of the specific stories or what people are sharing. And so, Isaac, I, I know you just you're just getting started in your role as chair of the Neighborhood Safety Community Council. But tell us more about that and what you're already hearing from people in St. Paul about violence in the community. Uh, how do people see it, and what do people want to see change or, or to approach it? So, I think I think it's important that we ground this conversation in what we are, are kind of what I'm hearing. Um, are kind of two, I don't want to say camps, but just there's a little bit of a stratification. 
there's people who look at the traditional aspects of law enforcement public safety. So they'll, you know, looking at force levels and they're pointing out, for instance, people who are having issues uh, in, in, in public, perhaps being assaulted, things that are happening in our schools. And they're very much looking at law enforcement as kind of traditionally understood. And then I think there's a group of people in which they're trying to expand the aperture of what that means, right? So they're concerned about what are the supports that have to go to families, right? Kids who are coming from home who have, who have challenges that are hidden. We don't see those because they're behind locked doors. But we have the very public manifestations of those at our rec centers, at our parks, you know, at our, at our libraries. Mm-hmm. For every story that we hear about in the public in which there's an unfortunate tragedy that results in a loss of life, there's a lot of stories that we don't hear about of children showing up without shoes at our parks. Our kids showing up before the parks, before the libraries and the rec centers open, going in there all day and then waiting for a couch to find, to surf at night. Those stories go unreported. So, and that's happening. That is happening. That absolutely is per the conversations that we've already been having. Um, kids showing up in space, angry, a sense of social dislocation that has increased because COVID is, has, has just revealed to us the underlying issues. So really, I think this, these kind of two camps. And so what's going to be important is that we ha- when we have these conversations is that we don't limit ourselves in any way. It's a full spectrum that we need to be looking at in terms of how we keep safe, folks safe, right? There's safety in real time, but then there's also safety in terms of what's the opportunities that we provide that addresses the root causes. And darling, conversations you're having with people and with families, how are they processing um, some of the you know, awful headlines we see in the news and what's happening in their own neighborhoods? Mm-hmm. What kind of stories are they, they sharing with you? Well, I think the, it, you know, the stories are the stories that I think Isaac is also mentioning. It's, it's those inequities. It's those places where people have fallen through those systems um, and they don't know where to turn to. Um, I think a lot of our young people, even coming here today, I mean, there's a lot of young people hanging out. Yeah, I saw um, some as I walked in. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, but here's a brand new great rec center right here. Beautiful um, space. Beautiful yeah. space, and, and they're outside. And it's like, I think we have to go to them and mm-hmm. ask them, like, why? What, what, what needs aren't being met? Because we can, you know, hypothesize all we want, but we may not hit the mark about what they want. Um, you know, I think to get to the piece about the, the public safety piece, again, it's also that community interaction. You know, I was at a different library attending an event, and an altercation kind of happened between a mother and a daughter. And the one of the persons that were at the library was like, call the police, call the police. And it's like, no, don't call the police. It's a mother and a teenage daughter having an issue. Let's figure out if we can separate them and figure out what's going on. And so some of us as community members, we did kind of jump in there and to cool that situation down. And it's like this family, it was like a family of seven. So had they called the police and the mother and the the daughter ended up being taken away, what happens to those other little ones there? And I think those are the things that we have to be thinking about. It's like when we're saying public safety, we're not saying in community safety, we're not saying like the police have no role. But sometimes there's a role before police need to be in, in that um, and I think that that's also another thing that creates that sense of like the world is against us and we just go out and just do crazy things then. And we end up with violence sometimes because they have not had that support. 
I want to share something. Um, I want to read something to you all. Um, Senior District Judge Bruce Peterson published an op-ed in the Star Tribune earlier this month, and he has some insightful things to say about how trauma and violence impacts communities. So I want to read this. Um, He says, trauma is an experience of powerlessness. Survivors need to regain a sense of control over their lives after the senselessness of a violent crime. They need to be heard and have their pain acknowledged to get answers and to be able to construct a coherent story about their tragedy, why it happened, and their capacity to get past it. They want to speak out and make a difference. Healing like this takes long-term trauma-informed care and culturally rooted healing practices. Again, uh, this is an op-ed from Senior District Judge Bruce Peterson. And I'd like to hear your reactions to that. And Darlene, I'll start with you. I'm especially interested in your thoughts about the sentence, healing like this takes long-term trauma-informed care and culturally rooted healing practices. It sounds like what you were doing at Irreducible Grace Foundation. Definitely, definitely. You know, we started, like I said, 11 years ago, and there's one particular young person that comes to mind, and honestly, I've been working with her for 10 years, and she's kind of like my niece, but there are still things that she reveals to me today that I just can't fathom how she went through it, and it's trauma at such Mm -hmm. deep levels, Um, and yet, I mean, a wonderful person trying her best, and each time it seems like another barrier comes up. And it is that long term of like being there through those barriers, being there through that to to really help them. Um, It is long term care. And it's also like preventative care, which a lot of people don't really think about. Um, Like our organization, the work we do day to day, and we offer it in multiple formats, in multiple ways. Um, And we offered it to some school districts and things like that and got like no response. And then as soon as the young man at Harding got stabbed and killed, it was like, hey, can you all come in? And it's like, Okay, now you're asking us to come in on the back end. We were trying to get there beforehand and to teach these skills because the skills really help young people to regulate themselves. And you don't have to have a lot of police officers in school. You don't have to have more intervention specialists. You don't have to have communities as much with, like, you know, those type of staff there when young people can do this work themselves. And, Linnea, your thoughts about uh, the idea that, that people need to be heard and have their pain acknowledged um, what can you add to that, or what do you think about that? I think it's true. It it is exactly what it said. What it says, people do need to be heard. Um, I think we have society, unfortunately, has this way of when someone speaks out about something or someone confides in you. The first thing that people want to do is either diagnose and then think that they can fix it. And sometimes it's good to just listen. And ask someone, what do you think you need that we could do to make you feel better or make a difference or change your circumstances? And I think that's part of listening is acknowledging what someone is saying and then asking them, what can you do to help? Because a lot of times we just listen and then we assume that we know what's best for people. And that's what I love about the work that the Neighborhood Safety Community Council is going to do is because we are going to listen and we're going to allow the community to influence our preventative measures. And Isaac, your thoughts on... Sharing stories, listening, having pain acknowledged, trying to find an answer, and, and trying to, to move past it. So I think 
you know, obviously coming from a public policy world, everyone loves data, 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 data. But the challenge that we encounter when it comes to data is that that lived experience that people have just doesn't show through, right? And therein lies the challenge. I think, you know, Linnea, I think you mentioned something that's very good is, is you know, listening to people's trauma. And instead of always trying to fix it, there's something else that uh, sometimes, you know, unfortunately, commonly actually happens is the attempt to explain away that trauma, right? A sense of sort of delegitimization of it, right? People who are saying, these are the things that I'm experiencing. So engaging them in a way where it's, it's discounting their lived experience, right? And the things that they see in their community every day. And it's important that, you know, we don't do that. And it's important as we move forward with public safety that that's not the model. I think um, for a lot of people, it's just the acknowledgement of their human existence and what they've gone through is, is huge. But on top of that, it's working through those barriers that you've mentioned, because oftentimes those barriers are the things that we see showing up in public, right? Someone's angry because of the things that are happening in their life, they're showing up, they're fighting, right? They're putting up those walls, they're putting up those barriers. So dealing with that is, is going to be key. It's not going to be easy, but it's, and it's going to take self-reflection on us as we engage folks, and they're telling us these are our struggles. Before we can continue, I want to hear more about your day job at the Center for Economic Inclusion. Mm-hmm. What do you do there, Isaac? So I'm the Director of Public Policy. So the center, basically, we try to close Minnesota's racial wealth gaps, uh, more inclusive economy. And for me, that means that I, I work on any policy, really, that I think will help move us there and support other people in their efforts to try to, to do the same. So it brings me across a whole host of different policy areas. And there's a connection between economic distress and violence. Yeah, I mean, um, absolutely. I, you know, it, it's, it's no wonder that we've seen across the Twin Cities over the, 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 the past 30, 40 years increases of areas of concentrated poverty, but then also, quite frankly, white flight that pulled out a lot of that economic wealth. And then also what happened with the destruction of Rondo and what that did for the community. So there is absolutely a tie there. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a special In Focus discussion recorded live at Arlington Hills Community Center here in St. Paul. We're talking about violence and trauma and how the shockwaves impact individuals and community. We're also going to talk about what we can do to break the cycle. I want to reintroduce my guest. We have with us Linnea Jacobson from St. Paul's Office of Neighborhood Safety. And we have Isaac Russell, the chair of the newly formed Neighborhood Safety Community Council, and Darlene Fry, the founder of Irreducible Grace Foundation, an organization that creates safe spaces and healing opportunities for youth of color. And Darlene, you mentioned the, the Black Youth Healing Arts Center. Tell us more about that because you have a new building, right? Yes. Yes. So we have What happens new... there and where are you? We're in Frogtown. We're at 643 Virginia Street. Um, and we are... Um, there we are doing activities that our young people ask for and different modalities of healing. Like what? So we do yoga, we do ceramics, we have painting, drawing, um, we do meditation, drumming, um, we have an open gym on a couple nights a week. Um, and darling, what's your definition of young? Well, <laughs> that sounds yeah. that sounds good to me. What's going on there? Yeah. 
Well, you know, we've had to expand our definition of young um, because we also wanted to be intergenerational because we know that trauma is intergenerational. So we have elders as well who come in, community elders. Um, I'm not sure why so, you're staring at me. I'm not, say staring, elders, I'm not staring at you. I, when I, I like say that, that I'm thought. staring across the room, but I'm just saying. Um, but what, do, what's the dynamic of having an elder and a young person together mm-hmm. working on a ceramics project? Um, it's been fabulous. You know, the other day we did a cooking uh, program and we had Chef Lachelle Cunningham come in and she taught um, them how to cook. And it it ended up being four African-American males and then two female elders came in and they were like, oh, you're doing a good job, sweetheart. You know, and it's like to have someone to affirm you when you're doing something you haven't done before, um, because three of the for barely cooked. They didn't know how to chop up things. And so they got that affirmation. Um, and just to see the young men interact with them, you know, they helped make their plates. They took them over to them. Um, and, you know, they gave them wisdom about, you know, being a black man, it's important that you know how to cook and that you know how to feed yourself, whether you are partnered later in life or not. And I just thought that was just the best thing, you know. So, um, our definition of young people has expanded since we had our building, since we've had our building, um, but it is about intergenerational healing. Mm. And across the week, or how many people do you think you're serving now? And, um, you know, is the interest there? Are, are, are people coming? Oh, yes, people are coming a great deal. Um, so I think right now we're at about 100, 125 a week of mm-hmm. folks we see. Um, tonight when I left, drumming, drumming was starting and painting was starting and the gym was open. And so between those three things, I would guess there's probably 70, there were 70 young people there. Um, so, yeah. All right. You let me know when you need some elders to show up. And okay. I'll come by. <laughs> All right. Um, now, one of the things that NPR News does before each In Focus event is to host a story circle. And I love this. It's, it's an opportunity for us to hear from members of the community about how uh, the topic at hand impacts them. The story circle for this gathering was powerful, as you might imagine, and I want to take some time to listen to a few of the comments. First, I want to highlight um, a student, a student named Gani Prado-Stevens, a recent graduate of North High School in Minneapolis who also attended a more suburban high school, St. Anthony, during his educational career. In our story circle, Ghani talked about the differences between the two schools and learning that his football teammate, Deshaun Hill, had been shot and killed. Listen. And then I think that's when it really hit me, like, dang, like, like this is someone I knew, like, that I literally played football with this past winter. And I was like, it is hit differently. Like, like I said earlier, you know, it's like, if it's someone you don't know, it's like you're impacted, but it's just different. Like, you directly know them. So then after that, it just felt like, I just took everything more seriously. Like some of my buddies, you know, be walking home and then on my way home, I like, like, let me drop you off, things like that. So it definitely was like a shock. Cause at St. Anthony, like I said, you know, me and my buddies were just walking everywhere to each other's houses at any time. Like it was, didn't matter. It was like, we were just like, there's no problem. You know, it's safe, feel safe. So, and then over North, I was like, dang, I realized like my buddies can't do this. You know, like I should, you know, try to help out as much as I can. So. So that's trauma, right? You know, he, he felt safe and, and then he didn't feel safe. Um, Isaac, you referenced um, your childhood and, and some very difficult times there. Um, and maybe that informs what you hear and what Ghani just said. Tell me your reaction to hearing him share his story. You know, it's, it, it is a sense of surreal when these sort of things happen to you. 
is because you you hear about it in other places, but when when it when these sort of things happen in your life, you just get that feeling like this this is kind of not real, right? Mm-hmm. And people deal with that in different ways, and some people crawl within themselves, some people act out. So when I hear that story, I mean, it the way some of the things that I've encountered in my life hits, you know, and I remember those. So f- for instance, you know, I. I spent my ninth grade year, I mentioned this to you, in, in, in Arizona. I went to the largest inner city school. There's a lot of students from, uh, parents from Central and South America, a lot of black students, and, and some white students. And I remember there's a guy, you know, we used to uh, play basketball with, his friends with, and he was just out front. And some, some kids from a local school who were supposed to be in school, but they weren't. Uh, they stopped out front and for some reason picked a fight and cracked the kid's skull open on, on, on the asphalt. You know, it was stained blood and he never came back to school that year, right? Or, you know, I'm sitting there and, and there's, you know, three black kids fighting six white kids with, with everyone standing around, you know, like, like it was a show to see. But, you know, seeing those sort of physical manifestations of, of violence, um, you know, it, it, it does affect you. And, it, and it's, for some people, it's a big thing, like the loss of a friend. Other times, it's these itty-bitty little things that stack on top of each other that add up over time to, to, you know, make a kid angry, which is something that I had to deal with. And how, how do you deal with it? And what, based on your own lived experience and what you've learned now as an adult, like, what helps break the cycle? So for me, what in part broke the cycle was getting out of the situation I was in my freshman year, right? I had like a 0.7 GPA, and I almost was expelled for fighting at school. Um, And I went to a different school, and that juxtaposition was different. The expectations of, of students in one place to the other place was different, and the supports to help them achieve those expectations were drastically different. You know, and, you know, I, I spent three years in White Bear Lake, there were less kids showing up on free and reduced lunch. There were, there were there. I was there. But it was just the environment was different. The expectations were different. And for me, that was that course corrector, right, is having you know, teachers look past my bad GPA and see something in me and, and want to invest their time in me, right? It's being removed from those situations. And then honestly, as, as an adult, it's you know, being honest with yourself on how those things affected you. Because I was that kid, just put up walls, would just detach myself emotionally from what's going on around me. But when those instances came in which, you know, it looks like someone is starting a conflict with me, I'm ready to react because that's in there. Do you think the services that Darlene has talked about at Irreducible Grace Foundation, would you have gone to a center or a building that offered yoga or ceramics? Open gym. Open, open gym. gym. Would you have gone? Yeah, oh, yeah. I would have gone. To, see, you get them with the open gym, and then you pull them into some other things, but meet them where they're at. So I, I would have. Right. And, and Linnea, when we talk about breaking the cycle, and you know, I think of the phrase, hurt people hurt people, um, what have you learned about you know, how the way we deal with trauma, acknowledging it, talking about it, and trying to to help people process it, like how impactful that is? I think that Isaac hit the nail on the head when he said, he mentioned investment. It sounds like someone invested in him, someone's invested in him. And I think that when we're dealing with 
um, trauma, um, just like Darlene's position. We want to be investing in the, those people, in, in anyone who's dealing with um, some sort of trauma. You want to hear what they're saying and let them know that you're there to help, but then invest back into them um, ment- with mentoring, um, going back to wraparound services, um, paying attention. Um, and being where they are. And just meeting them where they are, like mm-hmm. Isaac said. Um, everything doesn't always have to be a jump on it, let me help you, let me help you, I have the answers type approach. There are ways that we can get people involved in other activities or other projects or um, other dialogue and community conversations that will also help alleviate some of that trauma because they're sharing their experience and they're allowing us to come in and make some changes and do something different based on their experience and just knowing that you have stake in what changes are going to come can also help be part of the healing process. And Darlene, can you think of examples? I'm sure you've seen over um, your years and your career um, the cycle getting broken. I mean, things changing, like this turnaround, this this intervention, this person, this, uh, you know, something that created change in someone's life, someone who's been through something. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think first to go back to a piece that Isaac said about, like, also, it's about sharing his lived experience, because if you see him sitting here in this suit, you don't imagine a kid who grew up going home to a roach-infested hotel. I'm, I'm still stuck at that so. 0.7 GPA. Yeah, boy, no. <laughs> <laughs> very concerned about that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that's real. But it is real, and it, and it is about seeing that beyond that 0.7. Mm. Um, and so I think that that's the piece, mm. and as Linnea was saying about that investment, like we as adults have to invest in our young people and we have to tell them the real story that, you know, I, I have a version from mice and rats and I see them everywhere because I grew up with that and I have an issue with that. And that's my issue. That's my trauma. Um, but they know that you don't, Dr. D is not the same person that you think she is. Dr. D had a different lived experience and I can get with you on that level. If you, if you need me to, we can talk about that. And I think that's also something about our elders and other people being invested in our kids that we see, they see grownups, but they don't see the child who's gone through some of the same things that they've gone through. And so I think the, the, the breaking the cycles is about sharing our story. It's about being there with them and letting them know you can get beyond this when you put the investment in yourself. Um, For me, I see those barriers breaking when they invest in other people. Like I have young people showing up and they're showing up to do, work in the community. They're showing up to teach little kids. How do you regulate yourself? How do you pull that, your, your nervous system down? Because when you're in a situation where other people are deregulated, that's what creates mob mentalities. That's what creates the thing where people want to stand around and watch a fight. But if you have the ability to calm yourself down, make some space in your nervous system, like Resma Minikin says, mm. then that helps you to be that more calm one in that process and to maybe do a different choice and, and to go a different way. As we research this topic, we heard from many people in the community that one thing that has changed in the last few years is the presence of more guns in the community, more guns, uh, weapons, can allow bad decisions to become deadly really fast. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I want to talk about that for a minute. And as we think about 
um, more access to guns, just guns being everywhere and, and guns being more uh, a part of the story of some of the violence that has, has played out. Um, what, what have you seen change in the last few years and what, what do we need to do to remedy that, Ladea? Well, I think that's definitely at a federal level. Um, there's got to be some changes made at that level so that they can trickle down and we can have more control over what is out there. We also need to have more education, I think, around guns and gun violence. I think that our youth are not aware of the impact. They are aware of the impact without being aware of the impact. What does that mean? I mean, they know what a gun does. Hmm. They know how it hurt somebody and they know the results of shooting a gun, but they're not looking at the impact that it's having on the families of the victims. They're not looking at the impact that it's having on their family, Mm -hmm. um, being the person who pulled the trigger. Um, They're not knowing what the impact is going to be on the rest of their life, how it's going to affect them mentally, how it's going to affect them um, as far as their freedom, as far as... um, if they're able to get out of prison, if they will be able to um, get a job, um, start a family, they're not looking at the whole entire impact. So they know the effect of shooting a gun without really knowing right. the full entire effect. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, education around guns is definitely something that we need. And like I said, going back to making people value life. What's out there that makes you feel like you're important? What's out there that makes you feel like you have a future? What's out there that makes you feel like you want to set goals for yourself and you want to live a full life and you want to have a family and, and, and watch your kids grow and watch your grandkids come along? These are things that values that we have to start pouring into our young people. Darlene, what are our young people telling you about guns, access to guns, and why guns are more frequently becoming a part of disputes? I think the access piece, um, I was talking to a young person and talking about, you know, young people joining gangs or just feeling like they have to have a, a gun. And someone said to me, like, like, they saw a gun when they were seven and someone offered them a gun when they were seven. And so when you think, you know, what Linnea was just talking about, about them knowing but not knowing, they don't know at seven what a gun does. They don't know the, the impacts it's going to have if they pull that trigger. They, you know, your brain is not formed enough at seven to know what that's going to do. And I think, again, it goes back to what, is, what are our safety nets? What are we doing in community that a seven-year-old isn't offered a gun? And, you know, again, I, there are no gun shops that I know of here in St. Paul. So where are the guns coming from? So it's a system of going upstream and downstream at the same time um, to stop that from happening. Isaac, I think you mentioned that back in the day you were more of a fist fight kind of guy. And so when you hear about um, incidents involving young people and guns, uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, this is the past 30, 40 years, this has been that shift, right? From, you know, my father's, you know, era in which it's like, oh, we're going to fight you, right? The fist fights, we're going to fight in the streets to increasingly 
the the resolution of of, of conflict between people being um, resorting to to weapons. And so, uh, what it does is it it's it, it's incredibly disheartening. And I think it's important. And I, and I think you, you both are, are are speaking to this. Is that you know the realization that youth are not just little adults. So we just can't expect that they have this frontal lobe developed the same way that we do and that they're going to be like, oh, this makes sense, right? Youth that is experienced trauma, that is suffering, their, their time horizon that they're looking at is different. They're not looking long. They're looking short, right? They're looking mm-hmm. to tomorrow. And with a society completely wrapped up in this idea of sort of instant gratification and then the, the glorification of, of people in the public eye with firearms and people within their own peer group that have owned firearms, it makes it a very difficult situation. So there's going to be that education piece about the ramifications of this, but it's also going to be having to walk with them through their own development, both as youth that is naturally going to develop, but then also as someone that's trying to develop while they're going through all this trauma. So what I, what I hear are, are opportunities, but it's also heartbreaking Mm-hmm. I want to listen to another voice from one of our story circles, and we're about to hear from Muhammad Abdul Ahad, founder of Touch Outreach, a nonprofit group in Minneapolis doing violence interruption work. Listen. Said we're lacking the, you know, the leadership and understanding the urgent of the need for some of the things that we need to be more, have more of an impact with the work that we're doing. Um, and that's just getting us the resources when we need them in those live in, in live time because we are out here building these relationships to try to stop curb some of this violence. I want to say stop try to curb some of this violence, you know, that's happening out here um, on a daily basis. And one of the things is being able to you know deliver on those resources in live time. So if we got an individual that we're working with, and you know, they're saying you know giving us what they need, and it's, it could be something as simple as you know. Um, taking to go get an identification, even though we can do that, but, you know, eliminating those barriers so we can get things done quicker instead of, you know, somebody taking, you know, two weeks to get it done. You know, let's not, let's get these individuals, you know, some of the bare necessity things that they need in order to, you know, start living a decent life. So what do you think can be done um, that would get the right resources to people um, in an easier way so that this cycle can be broken. What, what have you seen that works, Darlene? You know, I think on the nonprofit side, it really is the general operating funds. Um, because again, you know, so often you get funds that are tied to certain programs and you're bound by that. But you know what he was just saying about trying to take somebody to get their ID. That's huge. You need some staffing time. You need somebody who can take them there and be with them. You know, I've done that before, and it's like a half a day sometimes. And right. so, you, you know, to have staff who could be there a half a day, that takes some money. And so I think that, you know, the we were talking a little bit about the disheartening part about the surplus in our state is that it's not going to the places that the state are most budget. in need in the state budget. Yeah, It's not going to the places that's in most need. You know, a lot of these nonprofits and community organizations that are doing the work it's always a balance between how do I do the work and then how do I convince people that my work is worthy enough to be funded? And so... It's time. It's time. Right? To right. go maybe testify or to mm-hmm. do a presentation or to right. apply for a grant. Right. All right. of that's time. And that all takes away from that relationship development and the supporting the needs of that young person or that person. Isaac, what's getting in the way of getting the right resources to the right people so the cycle can be broken? So I think... 
I, I think oftentimes, historically, we've operated from that deficit model, right? So what is it that you don't have? And then let's give you enough just to try to do our best to try to paper over uh, some sort of gap that you may have. But the challenge that we, that we have when it comes to, you know, when it comes to government, depending upon how high you go up, the slower it moves, right? Mm-hmm. Local government is like a speedboat, right? The ride's going to be a little more bumpy, but they can change direction relatively quick. You get up to the federal government, it's an ocean liner. <laughs> and it takes so much more to get that ocean liner to turn. But when it starts to turn, it will build up an inertia. Mm-hmm. Um, so you better be sure which direction you want it to go. So that, therein lies the challenge, right, is because people want to get resources out the door. There's pressures, you know, to, to be accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, as our own nonprofit, we're asking for an appropriation like, you know, hundreds of other nonprofits. And, you know, be, we've had to overcome the political obstacles because there's some nonprofits that don't operate the way a lot of others do that are doing these incredibly important works. And we're having an answer for that. I, right. I definitely know you've mm-hmm. had to deal with that also. Yes. So that therein lies the challenge. So there's, there's political obstacles, there's obstacles in accessing the individuals that give you sometimes the, the, the opening into certain communities that allows you to get those resources out the door. And then there's also the fact that one person can have so many different needs Mm-hmm. And that may not all be in one house. And it just takes time to, to just call the next group to help them. Right. So, Linnea, what would make your job easier? What would uh, allow you to have more resources to do the work that you see the need for? I think more money. <laughs> <laughs> um, but everybody needs more money. But I think it's like um, Isaac was saying and, and, and Darlene, it's, it's the financial piece. And there's so many different rules and regulations and things that are tied to wherever that money comes from that it does prevent people who actually are, have boots on the ground in the relationships and are there with the community. It prevents them from being able to do their work. And that's a huge barrier. That's a huge barrier. I have one more voice from the Story Circle. Um, we're about to hear from Connie Rhodes, who I bet many of you may know. She's the executive director of Restoration Incorporated, a Minneapolis faith-based group also working on youth development and healing. Listen. A lot of our young people are dealing with this kind of trauma every day or every week or every month. They're dealing with it. And so how we know it's working is... Um, at least how I know it's working in my story is that when we're out there every day, when we're stopping a shooting up close and personal, when we when people have guns and we're able to de-escalate and talk them down and get them to put their guns down to do something different, to follow their passions, to follow their love, that's how we know it's working. Never gets maybe never gets publicized, maybe it's never on the air. But we know when that young person is not standing out there, is not shooting, is not re-injured, hasn't been shot again, hasn't been locked up for shooting somebody, we know it's working. But we have to do it together. Mm-hmm. I like what she said about uh, how we know it's working. And so let's talk about that. Um, Linnea, the Office of Neighborhood Safety here in St. Paul, it's young. Um, it just got started in the last year. But how do you know what you're doing is having an impact or definitely will have an impact? Well, we want to start with building relationships and rebuilding relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, I mean collaborations. Um, what I would like to see happen is 
the city of St. Paul has so many resources and so many programs that address all the different needs that community needs. But we also have our nonprofit organizations and our grassroots organizations that actually have already established the relationships between with, I mean, establish the relationships with the community. And we need a partnership with collaborating. What I would like to see is our grassroots and nonprofits collaborate with what the city has so that we can work together because then that brings every, they'll bring, help bring the community and then help us connect them with resources. So I believe it's more about collaboration. That's, and that's what Office of Neighborhood Safety is trying to do, um, just collaborate, building relationships, connecting community with the resources that we already have. Isaac, how important is collaboration? Our collaboration is key, right? One of, the, one of the most important things that I think we have to understand about when, when government does anything is it's not just the end result. It's the process. And if you think you've delivered an end result and which like, man, this is really good and this is going to work. But the process to get there is something that people don't feel is legitimate. Mm-hmm. There's a tendency that they're going to want to reject what you did, right? Because you did it. It's about us without us, Right. So that is going to be that has to be something that we can't do moving forward. So, like honestly, to me, success looks like we hear another one of these voices. If any of us come back here and they said they say, ONS did this and it helped make a difference. That's success. Stacking those successful stories, those community voices that are saying they're doing that, and then you know having that network of, of groups who are saying, you know what, you you guys are helping us, and here's those success stories. Darlene, how do you know what you're doing is working? What does success look like? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the pieces for us, we do work with really young kids. You know, the kids who are having a, a tantrum in the store where usually you'd be like, if you don't get up off that floor. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we work with them and talk to them and they know what's going on in their brain. And we have one little guy or his mom said, you know, he got up off the floor and he goes, my amygdala was hijacked. His and what? Like, his amygdala. So he knows that the, the part of his brain that, makes, that triggers him to, make, to know he's having, about to have a tantrum or had a tantrum is his amygdala. And so when you have that kind of information, you can know that these are things I need to do. He was like, my, my amygdala was hijacked, but I took my smell the rose, blow out the candle breath, and now I'm better. So we literally teach him, you put your finger up, you smell the rose, and you blow out the candle, and that helps you get back to calm. So take a deep breath. Deep breath. And then exhale. Yep. Yeah. And the younger you start that, like, you know, he's four. And he can say my amygdala was hijacked. (laughs) So when you have that kind of knowledge for the rest of your life, you know that there's a way that you can help yourself in in hard situations. Mm. And that's how we know our work is. Uh, This has been uh, an enlightening and powerful conversation. I want to thank all of our guests and our audience for being here. I feel like I have moved forward in my knowledge and, and, um, and also just feeling more hopeful as well, which is important. Uh, we need to close here, but um, let's consider um, this is the end of a chapter, not the end of a, a book. We're going to stay in conversation. You know I like to talk and I like to listen as well. Once again, want to acknowledge our guests. We've been talking with Linnea Jacobson from St. Paul's Office of Neighborhood Safety. Isaac Russell, who is uh, the chair of the newly formed Neighborhood Safety 
Community Council and the Director of Public Policy at the Center for Economic Inclusion, as well as Darlene Fry, the Executive Director of Irreducible Grace Foundation and the Black Youth Healing Arts Center in St. Paul. I also uh, want to thank our live audience, uh, all the people who came out, uh, left their homes, left work early to join us here at Arlington Hills Community Center for the conversation. If you'd like to hear the discussion again, look for it on my podcast, and you can also find a video version on the NPR News website as well as YouTube. And I want you to stay tuned for more In Focus conversation and stories. Our next gathering will be in June in Minneapolis when we will talk about how to make economic recovery inclusive. And we will be hearing from business owners along Lake Street who've managed to come back after the pandemic and the unrest following the murder of George Floyd. Until then, stay safe, everybody, and thank you for listening.